At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. All right, I want to begin this morning with a, uh, with a statement, and I want to see if you guys agree with me. No one likes a complainer. Everybody agree with that? Is there anyone who, dis- who disagrees with that? You really enjoy sitting down next to someone who likes to kind of just complain a little bit. Anybody like that experience? Yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't get any takers in the first service either. And yet, most of us sort of resort to complaining in some form or fashion when the things in life are not going the way we think they should go, don't we? Kind of the stresses start piling on. Constant inconveniences happen. All things are outside of our control. We start to grumble a little bit, don't we? That guy that's going 40 in the fast lane. The guy who didn't turn on his blinker, right? When you, these things are inconveniences and they cause us to grumble a little bit, to complain a little bit. It's almost unavoidable in our culture. And yet, we all just agreed that none of us want to be that guy. None of us desire to be that person. And yet it happens. If you've ever found yourself in that space, emotionally, spiritually, you're in that place where you are going to bring and register a complaint, I want you to know that there is hope. According to a 2018 study by a Clemson University professor, there is such a thing as an effective complaint. Her research suggests that this type of grousing can actually be helpful for you and for me. Here's what she writes. She says, it makes a difference whether you're approaching from unfiltered negativity or if you actually have a positive outlook and are making a specific complaint. You see, complaining without potential solution fuels further negativity. So today, what we're going to be doing is examining a portion of God's Word that gives people of faith an opportunity, an invitation to register effective complaints. You see, when we come before a holy and righteous God and bear our souls to Him, With the frustrations, the struggles, we join with the author of Lamentations. We join with him in what is a healthy part of our faith experience. It is a healthy part of our faith journey when we are open, when we are honest, when we are raw, when we are real before our Heavenly Father. That is when you and I are our most authentic. That's when we're at our most authentic. And yet, even in the midst of that rawness, we need to do something with it. We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in just a moment that helps us with that. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to gather 
to center our lives upon your word. Because today, God, we acknowledge that your word is true. It's truth. It has everything we need to walk out our faith. And one of the things that we will see as we open your word, God, is the desire that you have for us to be authentic and real. You want to know our whole hearts. But sometimes, God, we confess that that is, it can be ugly. Because we're disappointed, we're frustrated. And so in the midst of whatever you find as we lay our heart before you, would you meet with us today through the power of your spirit? Would you connect with us and minister to us in such a way that we can grow? That we can move beyond our frustration to a point of growth. God, in order to do that, we're going to need to hear what you have for us in your word. So give us ears to hear this truth. Give us eyes to see the truth that's on its pages. And then, God, we ask for humble hearts before you. Genuine hearts, honest, raw, real hearts before you to live out this word in the week ahead. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, church, we are going to conclude our journey through the poetic book of Lamentations. We've examined the first four chapters. Today, we get to chapter five. And what we've seen is this brutally honest heart cry of a prophet who has seen destruction. Everything he holds dear, everything he values is in ruins before him. It's laid out there. His heart is grieving. We've seen this over the course of the past few weeks. His heart is grieving, and so he does something that we have been practicing called lament. Now, what he does in chapters 1 and 2 is he cries out because of the pain he's experiencing. He just lays it out. He says, I'm experiencing this pain. It is killing me. And then, like a bell curve, we get to chapter 3, kind of the negative and the heavy and the painful in chapters 1 and 2. We get to kind of the pinnacle in chapter 3, where what he does is he proclaims that his source of hope is Almighty God, righteous God, holy God. Then you hit that peak and start the downward trend again. The prophet returns to lament in chapter 4, and as we're going to see, he begins lamenting in a, in a series of complaints, actually. And that's what we're going to find in chapter 5. But it's not just complaining. He ends with a twinge of hope. We'll get there in just a moment. But let's grab our Bibles and turn to Lamentations chapter 5. And as we do, what I want you to know is the text that we're looking at matters to us today, right here in White Lake in the summer of 2021. It matters to us. So let's look at it together. Let's begin at Lamentations chapter 5, verse 1, is where we're going to pick it up. The prophet writes, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look, look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must now pay for the water that we drink. The wood we get must be bought. 
Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we, we bear their iniquities. Let's pause right there. What we just read is a series of complaints. The prophet is complaining to God because God's people have been disgraced. God's people have become orphans. They are weary. Once again, as we saw in chapters 1 and 2 of Lamentations, you get to 5, and once again, the situation is bleak. So the author, the author does something that we are invited to do. He calls on God in prayer. But he does something a little strange. Remember, he prays to God, remember, Yeah, remember what's happened to us. Remember that we have been disgraced. Remember that we have lost everything. Remember. Seems an odd phrase, doesn't it? I mean, when we're talking about this text, he is addressing the sovereign Lord in prayer, right? I mean, are we in a place where God has forgotten his people? Who, who are you again? I, do, I don't recall. I don't, I don't remember. Seems strange. Has he misplaced them? I don't remember where they went. Of course not. What the prophet is doing in this text is calling upon God through prayer in the first of three areas that we're going to see today. Three specific areas of lament. And he's doing it when God's people lament our disgrace. We should lament our disgrace. Consider for just a moment what has been lost in that text. Let's pick it up at verse 2. He laments that God's people have lost their inheritance. It's been turned over to their enemies. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that so much significance is wrapped up in the land. Nothing carries weight like the blessing of land, and they've lost it. Now remember, the land was a sign of their special covenant relationship that they had with the Father. But now it's gone, and they're disgraced. Then you get to verse 3. That was just verse 2. Then you get to verse 3 and he he laments that God's people have become orphans and widows. It's not good for the furtherance of a culture. Families are in shambles. They're unprotected. They have no security. It is bleak. Again, another sign of the loss of favor of that covenantal relationship. God's people are disgraced. Then we get to verses 5 and 6. The disgrace comes in the form of being strangers in their own land. Now they have to pay for the most basic of services. They've been humiliated to the point where they have to pay not only just individuals, but they have to pay their enemies. They have to pay their enemies for the basics. God's people are disgraced. That's what's happening very clearly in this text. 
And then in the midst of the disgrace, the prophet reveals to us and all who read this text the reason for his sad state. The reason for the sad state of God's people, and it is sin. Sin. What we've seen throughout Lamentations, if you've been reading along on our our mobile device or if you've been reading along in the journal that we handed out at the beginning, you could see a pattern that happens as you read through the book of Lamentations. It kind of comes up again and again. There is sin, there is struggle, and then there is confession. Sin, struggle, confession. It's a pattern that we see throughout the entire book, throughout these five poems. And that's exactly what happens in the first seven verses of chapter seven. When the prophet calls on God, he says, remember, remember to see our disgrace. What he's doing in that moment is he's asking God to see the shame that rests upon them because of their sin. disgrace and shame those are two words that that can hang around our necks like a millstone they burden us each and every day they're weighty and sometimes if we're going to be bare bones honest with each other this morning sometimes the burden of disgrace and shame brings us to a point of being completely overwhelmed We've got nothing left. Sometimes we feel disgrace and shame because of the choices that we've made. Other times we feel shame and disgrace because of decisions that other people have made that have had a direct impact on our lives. Completely out of control and yet there is disgrace. Yet we struggle with shame. Now, this is the point in the sermon where I would normally give you an illustration. I would give you a number of illustrations. I could go down a laundry list of things that would bring disgrace and shame into our lives and into our experience. We would recognize those very quickly. You could say, yep, I'm familiar with that one. I'm familiar with that one. But here's the reality. I don't need to. Because when I said the word shame and I said the word disgrace, you had something that came into your mind in that moment. I don't need an illustration. You already have one. It's a burden that many of us carry and the burden is heavy. Weighs on our hearts. It's that stuff that keeps us up at night. And that's exactly why this text is so important for us. That's precisely why this text matters to you and to me on our journey of faith. Because it is in the midst of our burdens that God invites us to come to him. Let me say that one more time. It is in the midst of our burdens that God invites us to come. It's not say, hey, I want you to wrestle with that struggle, fix it, and then come to me. I want you to kind of push it aside and act like it never happened. Just ignore it. That's not it either. God invites you and I in the midst of the struggle to come to him. Listen to the words of 1 John we confess our sin 
If we acknowledge our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our God. Then the writer of Hebrews adds this. I love this. Let us then with confidence with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help in time of need. In the middle of it, not after you've fixed it, not after you've pushed it aside, not after you've ignored it, in the middle of it. So whatever that thing is that you're struggling with, the shame and disgrace that you carry from your sin, the shame and disgrace that you carry because of the sins of someone else, we can and we should bring those to God in prayer as a lament. We're invited to do that. Because God not only remembers them, he not only remembers them, he uses our cries to draw us closer to himself. Now, let's return to the text. Pick it up at verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. The prophet writes, Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger. They stagger the loads of wood. The old men have left their city gate. The young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Clearly, God's people have lamented their disgrace and their shame. And right here we see why they are so ashamed. Once they were slaves... They were in captivity, and then God had a special hand of favor upon them. He freed them by the awesome power displayed in the Exodus. Many of us have seen the movie where God's people are released. They were in captivity, then they're free. Now what we find is they're in captivity once again. And they're in captivity by their lowest conquering enemy they're in captivity as slaves and there is no real hope for rescue that is what is on the heart of the prophet the magnitude of the struggle is captured in just a few words detailed right at the beginning of verse 8 slaves rule over us there is none to deliver us from their hand Then as you work through verses 9 through 16, we get the gory details. There's a lot of details there and they're not good. They must search for food in the wilderness at risk of their lives. Young women are sexually abused. Older men are stripped of their dignity. 
There's no leadership. There's no governance. There's no direction. There's no vision. And perhaps worst of all, there is no music. There is no joy. There is no celebration. I want you to think about that for just a moment. A world without music. A world without joy. A world that is void of celebration. Woe to us. For we have sinned. We are enslaved. And that helps us see the second important area of lament for God's people. That we should lament our enslavement. God's people should lament our enslavement. Now to be clear, the things that I highlighted in verses 9 through 16, most of us are not experiencing that stuff today. Our enslavement is found in practices and the experiences of our world that are vastly different, but that doesn't mean they're not true. That doesn't mean that we're void of being enslaved. We're typically enslaved in our time by things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but once they they rise to a level of idol in our lives, that's when they enslave us. Let me offer three primary ways that you and I can be enslaved. And I, I just picked this list. First off is work. When work must be done, morning, noon, and night, when work is done at the expense of relationships and friendships and family, i got to go to work, i got to get this thing done, that becomes an idol and it enslaves us. How about food? When food becomes something we live for, instead of used to fuel us in the way that God has empowered us in the lives he's given us. When that becomes the focus, that's an idol and it enslaves us. Perhaps the third one is the most significant. The third one is technology. So it might be a little closer to home for some of our young people. Perhaps some of us old folks too. Can you go 30 minutes without using your phone? I mean, really, can you set it down and not check it? Oh, wait a minute, I I got a text. Wait a minute, I got an email. Oh, wait a minute, there's a sports score coming in. Can you set it down for 30 minutes? How about all afternoon? Could you do that? How about a day? What would it look like to set that thing aside for a day? Church, these are things in our lives that enslave us. It happens even in our time. Our struggle is not the same, but we still still fall prey to enslavement because we can never work enough. We can never get enough. We can never be enough. That's why we get enslaved. When something begins to control us instead of us controlling it, that's the sign that we're enslaved. 
and say, well, pastor, I'm so encouraged. Boy, I'm feeling good. It's heavy, but there is a response for the believer. For those of us who are in Christ, there is a response for us to experience in the midst of this. What do we do when we are enslaved? One word, we repent. We repent. We turn from the things that are enslaving us. We leave them behind. Repent is that word that if I'm going in this direction, I make a 180 degree turn and go in the other direction. We repent. And we believe the gospel afresh. We believe that Jesus Christ has victory over our sin. He has victory over death. That's what the significance of the cross is, is that it sets you and I free. We are not a slave to that any longer. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Think about those Old Testament folks that the prophet is talking about. They were enslaved. They were set free. And then they're enslaved again. This is what Paul is addressing. Don't submit to this yoke of slavery. Don't voluntarily put yourself in that situation. But it's only through the power of Christ. It is only through the gospel that we can overcome the entrapments and the enslavements that we find in our world. It is only in Christ, in his atoning work on the cross, that you and I are set free, that we're set free. Now, let's close out today's text by looking at verses 17 through 22. For this, our heart has become sick. For, those, for these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures for all generations. But why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore to us yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, he writes, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Clearly, God's people are estranged from their unique, privileged, covenantal relationship that they had with the Father. The relationship is in tatters. The unity that they had has been, has been shattered because of sin. And that leads us to the third area that we can lament. We can lament our estrangement. We should lament our estrangement from God. This is the end result of everything we've talked about to this point. The disgrace, the shame, the entrapment, all of that finds its conclusion in this portion of our text. It says the hearts of God's people became sick. Their world has grown desolate. 
And yet in the midst of that sickness, in the midst of that estrangement, in the midst of that desolation, the magnitude of God's sovereignty shines through. It's like that dark cloud that hovers over us in a rainstorm, and then suddenly the sun pierces through that dark cloud. That's what we're talking about here. It cuts through the darkness. Look back at verse 19. But you, O Lord, in the midst of all of that stuff that he's highlighted, but you, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Everything the prophet has written about in this book lands on the significance and the truth of this passage. All the suffering, all the embarrassment, all the disgrace, all the shame, everything the prophet has seen, everything that he has experienced, it has been awful. Can we all agree that it's been awful? But it's not without hope. It is not without hope. You might say, well, how? Because God is sovereign. He's in control. And that means that he can change the circumstances. It doesn't mean that he will, but it does mean that he can. So you and I view the character of Almighty God. We think on his merciful actions. We think upon the grace that he has given us in history. That's why believers can have hope. But here's the question. It's a question that every single one of us must wrestle with today. In the midst of our struggle, the question is, do we? Do we have hope? In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, great book, by the way, the author, Mark Vroga, he poses a really powerful and significant question. Here's what he writes. He says, Christians are uncomfortable with the tension of the long rehearsing of pain combined with the appeal of God's grace when you put those two things together. However, restoration doesn't come to those who live in denial. You cannot just push it aside and act like it never happened. Restoration does not come, Vrogop writes, to those who are in denial. And then here's the question. He says, I wonder what would happen if more Christians confidently walked into, not around, walked into their darkest moments of life, guiding people to talk to God about their pain. To be real to be authentic, to come to God with our pain, with our frustrations, and yes, even our complaints. To come and to bring those to God because those are integral parts of what the Bible teaches us of lament. So church, I want to plant a stake in the ground this morning. Lament is good. Lament is healthy. Do you know why? Because lament brings us back to a sovereign, righteous, merciful, loving God. 
it draws us back to him. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.